Sometime off the air, the Elsewhere podcast returns. My name is Ian Ditchburn, and today we're going to begin unwrapping my first of three interviews recorded in Latin America earlier this year. Been sitting on them for quite a while. You know, I finally heard enough about people asking me, Do you still do the podcast? Yes, I still do the podcast. This is just a uh, occasional endeavor. But you know, I looked at my calendar and I realized that the the theme of this first episode was too perfect to miss. So here we are with what I believe is our first Halloween-themed episode, done with my uh, professor of anthropology, Dr. Kate Kingsbury, back at UBC, who I discovered happened to be uh, occupying her field site in a town right next to one that I was visiting. And I went to interview her about her focus, her anthropological focus, which is Santa Muerte. Now we're going to dive into a lot of detail over the next hour as to what exactly Santa Muerte actually is. But to give you a bit of a lowdown, Santa Muerte is the Mexican folk saint of death, often feared and misunderstood, misrepresented in the media as being a, a saint of the narcos. We're going to dispel some of those myths because while there is definitely a, uh, an element to that, it's also a lot more complicated. So I hope you enjoy us getting to the bottom of this. But first, we're going to play you in with an appropriate song. This is called La Bruja, The Witch, by Tlenwakeni. Ah! 
Hello, my friends. Today we are reaching you from the Oaxacan coast in the coastal fishing village of Proto Anhill, uh, nearby to where I'm staying in Playa Zipolite, which, as I understand in the original Zapotec language, means killing beach. So, Dr. Kingsbury, do you have any insight onto what exactly happened there to give it that name? It is said that the ancient Zapotec people, who were the indigenous people that originally inhabited these lands, would sacrifice their dead. Some people say they sacrifice their dead, others say they buried their dead, but in all cases, the fact of the matter is that there were rituals, death rituals taking place on the beach, potentially people being sacrificed to the seas in, in payment to the gods. But either way, people were being killed or were dead on the beach, hence the name, the killing beach or beach of the dead. And it's, it's so apposite because this whole area is absolutely saturated with death culture, death deities since the time before the Spanish arrived, so in, in pre-Columbian times. But to this day, death is venerated and plays a very important role. And, and death is omnipresent in the lives of everyone here. How would you tie what we're just talking about, which is the ancient Zapotec sort of death culture rituals, to your modern field of interest, which is Santa Muerte. Do you think there's a direct line between those two things? Absolutely. So many people in Oaxaca worship a death deity, or rather a folk saint of death known as Santa Muerte. Who is Santa Muerte? She's a very syncretic character who not only has Spanish ancestry in the fact that she is a saint. Um, of course, the Spanish, when they came over and they colonized the Americas, they proselytized people, told them to give up their old indigenous ways of practicing religion, spirituality, etc. So what the Spanish did was they brought all these saints, they brought the figure of Mary, Jesus, etc., but they brought these saints into a land where death deities were very much part of the extant religion at that time, where people venerated death deities from, in the Zapotec lands, Shonashikwekuya, the goddess of death, Pitao Pizalao, the god of death, the Aztec, of course, had their own death deities, Mictikasihuatl, the goddess of death, Mictlanticutli, who looked over who resided or presided over Mictlan, the underworld, the land of the dead. So all these um, different groups, the Maya also had their own death deities, were worshipping death. So when the Spanish came over with their saints, they brought with them the figure of the grim reaper to symbolize death to encourage people to pray, to confess, to do right in life so that they might go to heaven and not to hell when they died. But of course, the indigenous people seeing this figure of the Grim Reaper took it 
as a figure of death to be venerated in its own right. And we have in the colonial archives records of people like the Chichimeca and people even very close to Oaxaca in the neighboring states uh, worshiping these figures, working with them, even shamans working with them to deliver healing and prognoses, etc., etc. Of course, the Spanish uh, were absolutely furious that this was going on and decided that this was idolatrous and that these idols of death that they were worshipping must be smashed to smithereens. And so all of this goes underground for absolutely years and the skeletons literally go into the closet until the 1940s and the 1950s when several anthropologists, um, a Mexican and several Americans discover death, Santa Muerte, being worshipped once again, specifically by women for favors of love and lust and sex and to control men. And these prayers would take place at night uh, and women might even come together and chant these words together, perhaps over the photo of the one they desire or perhaps just together. And so this is when we see that, that death is resurgent. But it doesn't really resurge again. It still remains hidden in the closet until, I think it's 2001, when death reemerges publicly in Tepito, where you went to, right, Ian? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I visited the shrine there kind of by accident. We were doing a, a tour, a walking tour through Tepito. And just looking at, at my maps, I was actually taking a taxi, and I realized, oh, my gosh, just half a block away is the shrine, this original shrine where it kind of uh, emerged in a modern context, at least publicly. I've noticed traveling through Mexico, you can find her everywhere. Santa Muerte uh, shrines are kind of tucked away in almost every city I've visited. And unless you know that's what you're looking at, because obviously there's all the Dia de Muertos, Day of the Dead, um, iconography in Mexico, unless you know what you're looking for, the saintly robes, the scythe, it's easy to sort of mistake those things. But I mean, some of your research and, and the research of other Santa Muerte experts, I, I've, I've read that there's estimated between 10 and 12 million Santa Muerte adherents. Is that right? That is correct, but that would be across the world. That would be globally. I would say that in Mexico, there's probably about 7.5 million has been the estimate of Dr. R. Andrew Chestnut, who has written a, a book on Santa Muerte called Devoted to Death, Santa Muerte, the Skeleton Saint. But his work is very different from mine in that he looks at urban devotion. He's looking at Tepito. He's looking at places like that, whereas my work in rural Oaxaca is, has a very different flavor, devotion to death here. It's intimately tied not only to the sea and the sea's tides and moons and the fishermen whose lives depend upon the sea, but it's also intimately tied to indigenous spirituality um, and brujeria, witchcraft is a very important element in, in all of that. And of course, Rural life by the sea or close to the sea is very different from the urban context. So to circle back to what we were talking about earlier about Santa Muerte's feminine nature, I've read that some statues even portray Santa Muerte as pregnant. What significance would you place on Santa Muerte's 
femininity. Santa Muerte, you know, is a female folk saint of death, and she's intimately tied to women, but she's also intimately tied to femininity and, and to the fact that in Mexican culture, as I have written, death is female. If you look at all the big female characters of death, La Llorona is a very famous legend here of a ghostly woman that goes around weeping who drowned her children because her husband left her. You know, she's a female figure of death. You have La Catrina, who some people confuse with Santa Muerte, who is also a skeletal figure but wears a big floppy hat and often a frivolous handbag or other items like a parasol, whereas Santa Muerte carries the scythe. She's a lot more hardcore. People call her even una chingona, which is like a real badass. But getting back to why is death female, well, of course, women prior to the advent of medicine and science would die frequently in childbirth. Also, women bleed every month mysteriously, yet do not die from it. So we're very much in the Mexican culture. Women are seen as sort of liminal characters that are deeply intertwined with death and death is not only symbolically female and if we look at all the ancient also Aztec, uh, Zapotec female death deities, death goddesses, they were often pregnant because death and life are monistic here in Mexico. They're not, it's not dualistic, it's not uh, bifurcated, it's not uh, a dichotomy like it is in the West where it's death versus life. Death and life are intimately intertwined here and they're one and the same and one breathes into the other. So you have to pray to death for life. And death is also women's work. Uh, I've written about that in an article called Death is Women's Work because when people die... It is the women that come together to organize the funerals. It's the women who cry. It's the women who lead novenas at home. When people are disappeared, which they are frequently in Mexico, it's the women that will come together in a community f to look for the sons, to try and um, dig up grounds and see if they can find dead bodies. And also, death is women's work in terms of Santa Muerte, because most of the shrines, most of the capillas, the, the chapels of Santa Muerte here in Mexico are primarily run by women who do the work. And it's a tremendous amount of work, I know, because I've, I spend time at the shrine cleaning up old offerings, you know, of old flowers, old uh, beer bottles, fruits and foods that have gone off, candy, uh, clearing all that away, clearing away old candles, perhaps lighting candles for people who lit them but the candles went out and you want their petition to come through for them. Cleaning all of that up, cleaning the floor, and then once a month you have to do a full moon ritual, which is when you bathe the statues. Uh, you wash them first with soap and water, then you bathe them with special herbs, then you perfume them as you would any beautiful woman, uh, and then you smudge them with, with cigar smoke, and then you put them in the moon to bathe in the moon's rays and of course the moon is intimately again a feminine planet so this is even though of course men are so much a part of this religion the women are, are really doing the work so death is women's work and i think this greatly contrasts the other side of santa muerte which is it also stems from the catholic religion which is of course dominated by a male clergy um 
talking about the relation to the Catholic Church, where does Santa Muerte fit in the sort of Catholic cosmology, and how does the Catholic Church feel about Santa Muerte today? The Catholic Church absolutely despises Santa Muerte, and in fact, the Pope, the Argentinian Pope, on his first visit to Mexico City a couple of years ago, um, decried devotion to death and spoke about it as idolatrous and Santa Muerte is a macabre symbol of death, tying her intimately to narco culture. And of course, Santa Muerte is intimately linked to narco culture. I know narcos personally that venerate Santa Muerte, but there are many narcos who also turn to the Virgin of Guadalupe, who turn to Jesus Malverde, who practice Santeria. So you can't just pin that label on her because there are a plethora of people who, who turn to La Santa Muerte. But interestingly, if we talk about the emic etic distinction, so emically, so insiders, people who are part of Santa Muerte devotion will often tell you that she's Catholic. Some will tell you she's not, but some see her as a Catholic saint. But outside of the faith, uh, people think that she's very heretical and will tell you it is not Catholic. And in fact, you know, I've had a few um, bugaboos staying in Mexico, sometimes staying with uh, a landlady who knew that I was researching Santa Muerte and she was very Catholic and she was very upset that I worshipped Santa Muerte and as soon as anything went wrong, of course, it was my fault because I'm a devotee of death so I must be bringing bad luck to the household. Like the mosquito net ripped one day. You know, these are everyday occurrences in Mexico. The winds are wild, a mosquito net that's outside can rip but of course this was the fault of me worshipping Santa Muerte. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. In, in my visit to the shrine, one of the things I noticed right away is center and on, on the roof, on the ceiling sort of, there is still a Jesus Christ on the cross. So what I'm wondering is if, if at least for many people, Santa Muerte is a part of a sort of Catholic cosmology, why worship Santa Muerte? Why not worship God or Jesus or any of the other more typical routes for veneration? Well, I would say that God is, is what we might call in Latin a, a dios otiosus. So he is an idol figure in a way. He's very difficult to reach. He's high in the sky. He might not necessarily listen to your petitions. In particular, he might not listen to naughty petitions, petitions pertaining to sex, lust, perhaps getting your drug shipment safely across the seas, whatever it might be, you might not want to turn to Jesus. And he's a faraway figure. Whereas Santa Muerte, she has a character that's very, very specific, very, very strong. She's una cabrona. She's at the same time a sort of almost seductive skeleton, but also a real badass of, of a character who has a very strong persona and who can really be related to by people here and she's so intertwined in the Mexican culture because of this devotion to death that it makes it a lot easier for people to I believe relate to her to turn to her and, and to, to, to get an understanding that they couldn't get with the Catholic Church, which again, you know, you have to remember that Santa Muerte is a very informal faith, so you can practice it. Okay, there are rules and regulations and things that you should do, but there's no scripture, there's no priests 
guiding you, telling you what to do. There's no intermediaries. You can just take things into your own hands and do as you will. So it's a very free religion. And then the final thing I would say is that the Catholic Church has so many strictures on people. And people are finding it increasingly hypocritical with all the sex scandals that have arisen. There's so many sex scandals. And, you know, with Santa Muerte, you can drink, you can have sex, you can ask for naughty things. And there's just no judgment on the part of Santa Muerte. You could be a drug addict, you could be a drinker, and, and nobody would have any issue with that. And then on the final, final note with regards to women, you know, women are denied entry in many ways into the church. Okay, they can go and pray, but they can never have positions of power. And, you know, in, in very strict Catholic contexts, for example, if you're bleeding, you cannot go into a church, right? Whereas in Santa Muerte, uh, women have positions of power. They can take them, and even women's blood can be used in ritual and become something very powerful. Women's bodies can be very powerful in that context. So I think that for, for many women, it's, it's an empowering faith, which rather than you turn to the Virgin Mary and you are humble like her, you turn to this cabrona, this battle axe, and you can ask her to give you strength and even to dominate men that are behaving badly and need a smack on the bottom. Yeah, just to just to circle back and 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 shit on the Catholic Church one more time. I think it find I find it very ironic that basically everything that the Catholic Church accused, you know, metal bands and Dungeons and Dragons players of doing in the 80s, they were actually doing themselves for hundreds of years, child trafficking, enslavement, molestation. Um, now I think a lot of people are familiar with uh, Day of the Dead. Dia de Muertos. Um, between this and Santa Muerte, what do you think it is about Mexico and all of this this casual relationship with death? What makes Mexico special in that regard? I think there's a long history of death. I mean, going back from the death deities, but there's been so much mala muerte, what they call mala muerte, hit bad death. You know, with colonization in many places, up to ninety percent of indigenous people were wiped out, were killed. You know, that is a, a horrendous figure and, and it hasn't stopped since that time in the sense that since then there's been, you know, the narco wars, which are essentially small wars taking place. Death is just so omnipresent in, in Mexico and, and where I do my field work in Oaxaca, I feel more alive, but that's because sometimes I realize I'm living on the knife's edge of, of life and death because there's so many dangers. Um, the roads, as you've seen, Ian, are absolutely insane. They don't go straight. They're windy. They're on cliff edges. There's nothing but the jungle beyond that. There's drunk drivers. You know, there's narcos on the road. You can't drive at night. Uh, you know, there's poverty there's, there's diseases of all kind, from dengue fever to, to Chagas disease. Um, you know, people struggle to get their, their day's bread. If you're a fisherman out on the high seas, every time you go out, you're taking risks. If you go out onto the high seas, whether it's risks being killed by a killer whale, a current, you know, taking your boat where it shouldn't go and getting lost at sea, uh, like El Nino, for example, uh, sharks, uh, if you're a fisherman that actually transports 
drugs and uh, sometimes moonshine and also petrol, of course, is a big one here. Then, you know, you might face altercations with the police or with, you know, rival groups. Uh, for women, there are constant dangers because uh, femicide is at an all-time high in Mexico. It's gone up 137% in the last five years. Yet when people are convicted for femicide, of which there are very few convictions, only 1.6% of uh, femicidal murderers ever are ever put behind bars. Why do you think that is in Mexico? Is that just a failing on behalf of the justice system here? Is that a prejudice in the police forces? Or what, what do you think is going on there? I think with regards to the narco violence, it's obviously intimately tied to the U.S. Um, but I don't want to say more on that because I'm just going to get into trouble for my views. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, that there's... There are certain parties, let me put it this way, that have a vested interest in, in the drug wars continuing because they're making money not only from drugs, not only from guns, and these people are not only in Mexico. Um, and I think that the, the, the violence towards women is just all part of, of a culture of, of violence and a disrespect for women that knows no bounds. And, and there's a real dichotomy in Mexico and that's why, as you know, Ian, I always make a point to be alone at home and not to drive at night because women are supposed to be in the house. The domestic space is women's space. The outdoor space is male space. So women who are in the outdoor male space and who get killed are to blame because they shouldn't have been in that male space. And that is the rhetoric you will hear from the police. You will even hear from the state. Oh, you know, she shouldn't have been outside on the street at night. Oh, she must have been a whore to be out that late. That's what happens when, when women do that. So there's more of a blame game than there is any um, desire to resolve the situation. Tying this back to Santa Muerte, how is she viewed by mainstream Mexican culture? It depends what class you're from. Of course, people from the upper classes, the middle classes, view her as a narco saint. They view her as a saint of, you know, I would use a British word of chavs, right, of working class, poor people. Like they use terms, you know, terms of that nature, of that equivalent here in Mexico to designate followers. But most followers really come from the working classes. They are desperate people who are constantly dealing with death. And even for myself, um, I was drawn to this research and it came to me at a very pivotal moment in my life when I nearly died. And I think once you face death, when death becomes part of your life, there's two things you can do. And I think in the Western world, we tend to run away fearful and not want to face it and try to distract ourselves. Or even when someone dies, we're told to forget about that. Um, but then there's a second thing you can do and something that I think people in Mexico have been doing for thousands and thousands of years is that you can stare death in the face and you can make peace with death and you can also tune into the power of death and let her take you on a journey, um, a journey where, yeah, I'm not going to say you're not fearful. Of course, you're going to be fearful. You're not going to take risks, but you know that si te toca, te toca. If, you know, it's your time to go, then it's your time to go. And death, 
I would say is the most powerful force in the universe, at least everyone's going to die. None of us get out of this alive. We all have to face death. But death is also incredibly creative. And you're going to help me now with maths, Ian, because I suck at it, because <laughs> uh, I'm an anthropologist. But think about the lives that came before you for you to be alive. So you had two parents. They had four grandparents, right? Those four grandparents came from how many people? I guess eight, eight grandparents. Eight great-great-grandparents. Yeah. And what about your great-great-grandparents? Well, we're talking exponentially here. <laughs> so we're talking about so many deaths, right, for you to be alive right. right now. And then, you know, there's a second death that we have to talk about, um, which we spoke about, Ian, in, in a class that I taught at UBC. It's not just the death of life and death, but also the little deaths that we are constantly going through, the rites of passage, um, especially, I mean, uh, I could list myriad ones, but I think the most powerful ones are, for example, when someone breaks up with you, for example, and you're left heartbroken, that's kind of like a death, the death of who you are, the death of that person to you. Um, there are other kinds of deaths as well, perhaps when you lose your job or you're left in, in penury, um, and you hit rock bottom. And I think that people who are drawn to Santa Muerte have not only had deathly experiences in the literal sense, but also in the sort of more metaphysical or metaphorical sense that they have hit rock bottom. They have been at a point in their life when they think that they could not carry on. From a professional standpoint, what are some of the perils of researching this type of stuff? What kind of perils do you have in mind? I'm talking about from the perspective of colleagues and the academic world. Oh, um, I've decided in my career to go full hog, what some people call going native, um, and to accept fully devotion to death into my life because I felt that I could not just be an uninformed observer I had to fully participate and I would never be able to understand devotion to death if I didn't fully become a devotee myself. Of course, there's a lot of judgment about that. You know, people want to have scientific, empirical analysis. Um, but there are quite a few anthropologists now since the ontological turn that are recognizing that we need to study from a place of non-duality that we need to accept indigenous epistemologies. And I think that if you do not do that, then you are just perpetuating and continuing colonial oppression. And to say that someone's magical beliefs are illogical, inferior, stupid, nonsensical, all of that is extremely patronizing and rude and shows no respect for the faith that you're studying. So I think that you have to start to accept that there may be something real to what people are saying. And sometimes that's really hard for me. Sometimes I still doubt. And I think, you know, I still think from that Western rational perspective, but my goal here in Oaxaca is to try and discard that and reside in the power of the between where I can see from both points of view, but I am... I need to be deeply respectful of death. You can't work with death and disrespect 
death that is one lesson that I have learned the hard way. I suppose one thing that I can sort of contribute to this conversation, because as we know, as we discussed earlier, like we, we conducted the Olympia the other day. Spiritual cleansing. Yes. And, you know, even though this is not a world that I'm intimately aware of, certainly not in the same way as you, I fully believe and understand that to believe something is to make it real because it changes the way which you show up in the world and it changes the way in which you are interfacing with it. So I don't think there's very much value in viewing these mystical experiences from the sort of scientific analytical viewpoint. It's the language doesn't match. So from my perspective, I think you're probably going about things in the right way. Um, where do you think this attitude comes from though, this resistance to sort of honestly talk about mystical experience? Because a lot of anthropologists have taken part in ceremonies. I mean, proper anthropologies, you're, you're, you're living in these communities for years. And oftentimes people do have really life-changing experiences that then they are hesitant to write about for fear of backlash in the community. Why do you think the academic orthodoxy is like that, especially today in 2022? Someone once said that anthropology is the bastard child of colonialism. Now you can actually no longer say that because it's not PC, but I just did, so what the hell. Um, <laughs> now that people say more politely that it's, it was the handmaiden of colonialism, which is true. Anthropology came out of the colonial venture. And of course, the colonizers, the whole project involved uh, an us-them dichotomy where us, we are superior. You know, the early anthropologists like Tyler, etc., Fraser believed in the evolutionary trajectory that um, people who were uncivilized, according to them, started off as savage. Then they became a little bit more civilized and became barbarian. And then eventually they became modern. And of course, they categorized themselves as uh, modern. So they believed themselves to be modern. And the whole colonial venture rested upon that, that we colonialists, we can go and enslave people, we can rape, we can pillage, we can do what we want with their lands, because these people are just savage. Yet we are, you know, the others, uh, the superior people who have science, who have uh, non-superstitious uh, beliefs, whereas the other, the colonial other, the colonized rather, is just a savage who has these irrational, superstitious uh, childish beliefs. So it was a way of differentiating the self from the other using this dichotomy of savage versus modern. And of course, along with that came savage, no science, magic, right? Um, uh, civilized person, uh, science, etc., etc., which of course was a completely fallacious dichotomy because, as we well know, in the Western world, so many people are religious and there are still magical practices to this day. But that's where we get that from. And the whole of anthropology was founded upon this logical positivism, this kind of rationalistic attitude that because these beliefs are nonsensical and superstitious, they have to be explained 
away. So then we have all these theories, different theories, you know, functionalism, structural functionalism, all these different ways of looking at things, whether you use Durkheim or whether you want a neo-Marxian or Marxian approach. All these are ways of analyzing people's religious beliefs. But the problem with them, the problem with using that to analyze spirituality is that you never really understand what spirituality is. You never get to the core of its mysticism, which is, of course, a key component for the people that practice it. Taking what you just said, I mean, not to be too reductionist with it, but it seems like a lot of what early anthropology was was the intellectual justification of something that was morally indefensible. You know, and trying to put it in a sort of scientific term, and we're kind of living in the the echoes of that. I actually, I've met Mexicans here who I've I've told them about this interview that I'm doing with you, and about the fact that I studied anthropology. She's an anthropologist, and people are quite reticent about anthropology here because they're thinking about that legacy that we're still living in, the legacy of colonialism that that anthropology has its fingerprints all over, unfortunately. And it's not just in anthropology, it's in science and it's in medicine, as you saw in the class that we took on the medical anthropology of COVID, there's just a complete reticence to accept that there are other ways of seeing the world, other ways of healing people, and you know that um, big pharma is is not for everybody. That there are communities where people, for example, in Mexico, work with Santa Muerte for healing. And you know it's taken me a long time to get my head around that one. But I have met time and time again people who have told me that they had serious ailments, or their children, or their spouse was dying of this, that, and the other, or had cancer. And through faith healing, through the white aspect of Santa Muerte, because Santa Muerte comes in many different colors and her different colors have different powers, different virtues that can help with different issues. Through the white aspect of Santa Muerte, or perhaps the purple one, or indeed even the orange one for alcoholics um, and drug uh, users, um, through Santa Muerte, they or their family member was was literally healed without the need for medical intervention. And, and as I said, still to this day, sometimes I have a hard time wrapping my head around that, but I, I think that we have to respect that. And during times of COVID, people have been turning to La Nina Negra, the black aspect of Santa Muerte, who is the most powerful and dangerous and also destructive and can be very vengeful. But since they fear COVID, it is said that she battles COVID. And again, I have heard stories of miraculous healing from um, bad COVID. A, a woman, for example, who went into the hospital uh, and whose lungs were affected and the doctors thought that her organs would be decimated. But she was praying to Santa Muerte all the time. And she came out completely healed with, with no scars on her lungs, no fatal damage to any of her organs, and the doctors could not believe it. And she said it was because of Santa Muerte. And I think that if you look at that through a Western, rationalistic, scientific point of view, you're never, ever going to understand it. And, and even for me, it's hard sometimes to break that mold. But I have seen very bizarre things uh, happen at that shrine. I've been involved in prayers that have come through. And so when you experience these things firsthand, you can start 
to understand, to start to gauge. And it's as if you're slipping through a portal. You have to let your mind slip into a different epistemology, uh, a different way of seeing the world, because I truly believe that there are many different worlds. You could also almost imagine it as many parallel universes if you're so inclined. But once you slip in from one to another, then you can start to see the world in a new way and partake in it in a new way. But it can be really hard for us Westerners because we're just so saturated with with science and also the tendency to ridicule people who you know have other ways of thinking. And I think that's absolutely so, so disrespectful, which is why I've decided to bring my skeletons out of the closet. So the other day when I visited the shrine, we conducted a Olympia ceremony, which you mentioned was a spiritual cleanse. Mm-hmm. And to get rid of what they call mala aire, so sort of what we would call bad vibes, so sort of bad air, it's bad energy and souls and anything that you might have accumulated upon your way. And apparently you accumulated a hell of a lot, Ian, because you never did Olympia in your life. And both the senora, the uh, bruja, the witch at the shrine, told me that her arm was hurting the day afterwards. And I had some pretty bad nightmares. So she told me that that was because we had picked up on all your spiritual debris. Right. 29 long years. And uh, it's not the years, it's the mileage, really, that I've I've put on myself. Um, Right. Without revealing too much, because I'm sure some of this is privileged information, are there any other types of rituals that you could tell us about? There's all sorts of different limpia. So your limpia uh, involved, of course, using copal, which is an incense, uh, mezcal, which is a, a local liquor here made from the agave plant, uh, also many herbs, uh, also fire, of course, which is an important element. Um, but there are other limpias you can do, so typically with eggs, um, which is very typical in Mexico, but that bruja, that witch, often works um, with several eggs, and she will take you to a portal at a beach uh, where she says there's a portal and where she will break the eggs over you, or I'm not sure the specifics. I'm actually going next week to, to do this very ritual, um, and, and that can free people. There's also a, a ritual where I think you have to sacrifice a black rooster and use uh, the black rooster blood to cleanse yourself. And of course, these spiritual cleansings are an essential part of, of Mexican curanderismo, uh, healing, folk healing in general, not just Santa Muerte. But the beautiful thing about Santa Muerte is while the Catholic Church often rejects such practices and sees them as heretical, even though many people will do them still. Santa Muerte fully embraces, and that's what I think is so beautiful about it, and and encourages these things, and thus allowing these indigenous and folk healing uh, traditions to stay alive and even evolve and and meld with new with new methods. And, and a spiritual cleansing is very powerful because I think all of us carry baggage from our past. I mean, in Mexico, for example, Bruja Marie, um, this is the name of the witch, told me she works a lot with women who have um, you know been raped, uh, who have been beaten who have had all sorts of extremely violent experiences. And carrying that with you every day of your life is 
It's very heavy. So if someone takes you for a cleansing, it's a very cathartic experience where you're encouraged to let go of all of that pain, of all of the things of your past. And, and you know, it's it's like being reborn. This is where we see again the monistic nature of, of life and death, how you know you can use death and the power of Santa Muerte to renew your life and, and to and not really two sides of the same coin there. They go hand in hand. What is a bruja exactly? And how does that differ from more European conceptions of witchcraft? Uh, brujas or brujas feminine for witch and brujo would be a male witch. You also have curandero, curandero. They're more curandera or curandero uh, is more about healing. Brujas specifically also engage in what we would call magic what they call brujeria here so using different santa muerte statues and rituals you can do all different kinds of magic from you know love and lust magic to dominating someone once again you know the old-fashioned one the original one that's behaving badly so they're under your thumb you can do spells for money you can do spells for luck um, a lot of work takes place nowadays also for coyotes or people who are using coyotes to try and get across the border, especially because it's believed. Um, so one which I spoke to told me, whose name I shall not mention, that she worked with um, people who actually are coyotes that get people across the border. And it's very difficult for them because... Those lands are haunted, the borderlands are haunted, not only by bandits and rapists and the police and law enforcement that could catch you at any moment and, you know, you might be killed, you might be violated, you might have all your things stolen, you might get thrown out, but also by dead souls because so many people have died in the crossings that there are ghosts that haunt the paths. So you have to find ways to honor those ghosts and give them offerings along the way and pray to Santa Muerte, maybe light a candle, maybe give them some seeds or some water or some liquor. You have to give them offerings so that they will give you safe passage because they will be your guides. So people will work with brujos and brujas to help them in any kind of difficult situation. And there's a whole menu, if you will, of things you can choose from, from amarres, which means to tie someone down, so to tie a husband down or tie a wife down, uh, dominios, to dominate someone, endulcimientos, which is to sweeten a relationship that has gone sour, and, and many, many more um, things on that menu. And these are often reflected as specific candles that you can, you can light at a Santa Muerte shrine and uh, as they're lit, supposedly, uh, make those wishes come true. Um, wow, given your story about the whole um, migration thing with the coyotes, there's a certain level of precarity here that I think maybe this is why it's sort of hard for people in Canada or the United States to understand why someone would go to these lengths. And it's to do with a like you said earlier, being on the knife's edge. You're gonna take any edge you can get. My last episode was, uh, was about uh, a man 
who migrated from Iran, and he was one of those people on the one of those tiny little boats trying to make it to Australia. And in that situation, you're going to take any kind of help, spiritual or otherwise, even if it seems kind of dark or strange to us. So in some of your papers, you mentioned the importance of experiencing witchcraft rather than just imagining it. Could you elaborate on that? Well, I think that if you, if for example, someone asked you, look, I need you to help me with a spell. This is a life or death situation, Ian. And Ian, if you don't do this for me, then I could die. Um, you know, if someone asked you that, Ian, you don't want to just be there pretending. Someone's asking you to help them in their dire moment of need. Are you just going to pretend? Are you just going to make believe? If you do that, then you're going to be carrying that guilt on you for the rest of your life. And there are truly situations like that where I've been called on, where I've been called on in very serious situations to, to help with, with certain things at a mystical level. And that's when it dawned on me that all my anthropology classes, that everything I had learned had never prepared me for that moment and, and that this person was in, in a dire and desperate situation and that I had to, at that moment, truly believe because otherwise I would be betraying them and I would not be a good friend and furthermore, in a way, I would be disrespecting death. And death is so deeply respected down here as such a powerful force and not something you want to mess with that I realized, you know, I don't want to mess with, with, with death personally myself, nor do I want to betray my friends. So my only option at this point is to truly immerse myself as much as is possible. And by doing that, I've gained the trust of the family that owned the shrine uh, because it's a large family and they've let me in and they've let me see things that I don't think any other gringa or gringo have ever seen and, and some of those things I have to keep for myself you know stories I've been told information I've been given um, because as an anthropologist you have to respect people's right of course to, to privacy yeah, and it just goes to show how truly integrated into this community you have been and how accepted you have been but still coming coming at this subject from the perspective of someone raised in and free in, in your case the uk um i found that by learning about other cultures often we can see clearer the reflection of our own so are there any specific lessons you've learned about sort of anglo-american culture from your experiences down here? I think we're death denying and we're death fearing and we're extremely afraid of all that is other. People are so afraid of Santa Muerte. I've had experiences where um, people didn't want to take me home one night because I had Santa Muerte stuff on me after a lecture. And to me, that was strange. Then that person almost believes in Santa Muerte because they're afraid to have it in their car, but yet they're seeing it as something so macabre and other and and you know that's very racist to me in my mind of course i'm integrated in the community but i will never you know i will never be a mexican i will always be an outsider in many many ways i've just been fortunate that the family has has truly accepted me um as someone who has the right 
to witness certain things, but of course I had to go through many rites of passage to be able to do that. And I have learned of some secrets that I am allowed to divulge, such as one big thing that devotees will do who are absolutely ardent and who have decided to be devoted to death for the rest of their life is to do a blood pact ritual with Santa Muerte. So to do this at midnight, you go to the shrine, or if you have your home altar, you can do that there. And you set up your Santa Muerte altar with lots of offerings, uh, tequila, often mezcal here, perhaps cigarettes. Marijuana is also a common offering for some people. I mean, I even met a woman the other day who told me, oh, I don't smoke marijuana, but I buy this bag of weed every month to give to, to La Santa Muerte. Uh, of course, fruits, candies, chocolates, um, all these are very good offerings for Santa Muerte and many, many candles. So you would want to have your altar set up like that with, with, with many offerings. And then you would, um, you can either give the blood directly to Santa Muerte on her statuette or perhaps fill a goblet with it. Uh, so perhaps slash yourself on the finger. You know, you don't want this to be a tiny drop. You're giving death your blood. You're not going to uh, be a miser there. You know, you're going to be quite generous. Um, women can use, obviously, their, their moon blood from their time of the month, menstrual blood. Um, and so you give this blood as an offering to Santa Muerte uh, that she will protect you and provide you with luck and riches and whatever it is that you ask for for the rest of your life. But in return for that, death is extremely vengeful. If ever you ask Santa Muerte for anything or you do any such ritual with her and you make any kind of promise, you must come through. If you do not, people will warn you here, she will bring death and vengeance upon your family. So with the blood pact ritual, if you do that and then you start worshipping, you know, the Virgin of Guadalupe or Yemanja or some other spiritual um, deity, then she could come for you. More likely she wouldn't come for you, but she would make you suffer and, you know, come for your child or for your husband's. Um, and, and take them, take their life because you broke your promise to her. So she's almost like a, almost like a trickster figure in many ways that you, you have to be watch your step with her all times. And she will deliver omens of death. In fact, the oldest statue at the shrine that you visited, Ian, uh, where I work, is said to come out. She walks out of the shrine at night and walks the highways and delivers omens and messages of death. Uh, one fellow told me he was driving along that highway and she jumped onto the bonnet of his car and she just looked at him grimacing. And he said, what do you want? What do you want? And she refused to speak to him. Um, but a few weeks later, his wife died. So people will tell you such, such stories. And she also visits people in dreams and sends them messages and, and tells them things that they should do or offerings. And so people take dream worlds here very, very seriously. You know, in, in the Western world, the dream is just, you know, we psychoanalyze our dreams. It's all very Freudian, right? A dream is just something that your subconscious manifested. But here, according to, you know, in this ties in with indigenous ways of thinking here the dream is is not something that you have from within it's a message sent from without and it can be a message sent from santa muerte 
Also, animal omens are extremely important. Paying attention to animal omens, the animals that come around you that manifest. And you can also work with animals, as you saw. I believe Marie showed you her collection of coyote amulets, her snakeskin, um, and other items. So obviously all this stuff with blood pacts, vengeful, skeletal deities, this understandably might be a little freaky for some people. Can you think of any experiences you had in your life that have made you into such an open-minded adult to, to enter into this world? I don't think you need to be open-minded. I think you just need to expand your horizons a bit. Think about going to uh, communion at church and you're drinking the blood of God, of, of Christ, and you're eating the holy wafer that his, that's his flesh. I mean, that's creepy as hell. I mean, that's practically cannibalism. Right. Yeah, I've actually, one of the first thoughts I had in Puebla, there's tons of churches. There's like dozens of churches in like very, very small areas. And I, that's when I first noticed how prevalent the Catholic image of the, the very bloody Christ on the cross was. And I couldn't help but think how bizarre it must have been for the indigenous people having the, the Spanish come here and then being forced to venerate this dying man on the cross. And I brought that up at, at breakfast the other day. I was talking to, uh, uh, to a new Mexican friend of mine who said, that's actually less far-fetched than you'd think because of the sort of Mesoamerican tradition of human sacrifice. There is a kind of through line there that could make sense to them, which I, which I found kind of interesting. I hadn't really thought about too much. Um, let's maybe talk about the significance. I'm, I'm curious about the animal connection there. Do you know what the significance of the coyotes is? Is that a local thing or is that a very Santa Muerte thing? Oh, it's a very Mesoamerican deity thing again. I think his name was Huehuecayoto. I'd have to check the pronunciation of that, but this was an Aztec uh, coyote uh, god that was worshipped. The coyote has long been a sacred animal here, a sort of trickster deity that um, was a god of sexuality, but it would also play tricks on other gods and use kind of, you know, wily coyote, right? He would use his wiles and his ways to, to get what he wanted. And, and so the coyote is really sort of symbolizes being smart, being cunning. So when you need smart, when you need cunning, when you need to evade perhaps the law, or you need luck in something, or even you want to seduce, then the powers of the coyote are, are called upon. And Abuela, the granny that you met, the, the matriarch, if you will, of the shrine, who is a lovely, lovely, older lady, nobody knows how old she is because she's indigenous Zapotec and has no birth certificate, but has a long plait of silver hair down her back, it told me many stories of coyotes and the magic that they have. So one such story she told me was that she um, had a friend who had a finca, a farm, where they had many sheep and, and animals and such, and the shepherd would always watch the, the animals and check that no coyotes come and eat the animals. But one day this coyote comes and he uses magic upon the shepherd. And so the shepherd fell asleep due to this coyote magic. 
And while he was sleeping, the coyote made off with I don't know how many of, of the flock and ate them. So they, they, there are many tales of, of the, the coyote, and, and this is even deeply, as I said, if you look at um, indigenous religion, there are coyote gods. So this is the power of the coyote for protection, for luck, for love. This is what you want to tap into. Yeah, it's kind of reminiscent of the raven in Pacific Northwest, sort of Coast Salish culture with the, with the trickster archetype. So we've already talked a little bit about your encounters in this world, but how did you first stumble across it? Oh God, it was extremely random. Goodness. Um, so I was living in Edmonton at that time. I had moved from England to join my husband who had a job there. And I was finding the weather absolutely despicably cold and, and I was hugely depressed. I'm a sort of hot weather or warm weather person. And so I just said to my husband, we need to find somewhere warm to go to. I don't care where, it just needs to be close and it needs to be warm. So we went, we found a sort of cheap package deal in a place called Huatulco, which is a sort of tourist hotspot in Oaxaca. Um, and, you know, I'm not very good at being the idle tourist and hanging out with other gringos and just drinking piña colada or margarita or mezcal or whatever it is that they're offering. And I always am very keen to know how local people are living, especially what kind of spirituality they have, because I'm an anthropologist of, of religion. Um, and so I knew of Santa Muerte. And, and I spoke pretty good Spanish because I'd had a Colombian boyfriend way back that had taught me, I mean, kind of street Spanish, but it's always, it was enough to get me by. And so I started speaking to, to the staff at the hotel and asking them about the religious beliefs. And of, of course, eventually Santa Muerte, who is always whispered about, um, especially in those kinds of contexts. And they told me about a shrine, a very important shrine to Santa Muerte. And they kind of told me where it was and I was not quite sure really where it was but I had a sort of inkling and I thought well I think I could find that so one day we went out on a turtle tour uh, to a place called Masunte where you can do a very sweet sort of ecological tour where they give you turtle eggs um, they give you turtle eggs and, and newly hatched turtles and then you take them and then you put them on the seashore and then they you help them sort of go down to the sea and go on their little wee way so that was a really beautiful thing and, and it was a very pivotal moment of my life it felt sort of like a rebirth I have been going through a lot and the turtle of course has such importance as well in indigenous cultures so I had just released this little hatchling and my had, hatchling had literally been the first one to get to the seashore and it it felt it felt like a very special moment. And anyway, I went to talk to the guide. And I said to him, have you heard of Santa Muerte? And he didn't really know much about it, to be honest. And it was strange, because here I was, a gabacha, a foreigner, schooling him. And I said, I've heard of this shrine. And I would really like to go there. Do you think that we could swing by on the way back to the hotel? Do you think that you could find it? And he was a very open-minded man. And let me just say, I can be quite persuasive when I'm determined. And so he, he actually humored me. Always been a curious person. I'm extremely interested in what goes on in the world around me. 
And when I'm interested in something, I sort of won't let it go. I'm a very tenacious person by character. And so I was determined to visit, of course. And, and, and it was such a sort of mysterious arrival because at that moment the sun had set it was getting dark you know the jungle roads are really mysterious at night they twist and turn and you never really know where you're going and then out of all that darkness suddenly flickering amid a thousand votives it seemed was this figure of death staring me in the eyes and and that was just a very powerful moment to me to meet death head on like that so I went into the shrine and then out of the darkness came this um, elderly lady, this small elderly lady with a long silver plait down her back that would sort of become my adopted granny in years to come. And I don't think any other gabacha foreigner white person guero, had been there before. So she was sort of curious as to why we were there. And so I spoke to her, and, and it was strange. Immediately we felt a connection, and she was very warm and friendly with me and happy that I was interested. And she actually gifted me my first Santa Muerte statue ever, a little red statue that I still have to this day um, in, in Canada. And that's how the whole thing started. And, and I was just so intrigued, especially because I'd read, you know, Santa Muerte is the folk saint of narcos and violent men and criminals. And here was this elderly lady that was clearly tending to that shrine who was diametrically opposed to everything that I had read. And then after that, I was just researching it and thinking I couldn't get it out of my head. I couldn't get that figure, that face of death out of my head. And I, the more I researched it online, the more I saw that women were so deeply interested and devoted to death. And I read Andrew Chestnut's work and you know, much as it was very inspiring, I felt that there were questions that were unanswered about the role that women play. And even reading in his book, the lady who made devotion to death go public in Tepito, Doña Queta, you know, as I said, the lady was a woman, was female. So I was thinking, what is it with these women? Another character, Enriqueta Vargas, made devotion to death go transnational. She opened shrines in Colombia, uh, I think in Guatemala, uh, even there's one now in England, I mean, in all over, there's one in New York. So I thought, what is it with women being devoted to death? Why? What's going on here? And the more I studied it, sort of, it, you know, it's like Alice in Wonderland, you sort of fall down a hole or something, or it's like stepping, for me, it's more like stepping into a portal into another world, and you just... The more you visit, the more you find out about it, the deeper and the deeper that you, that you go. Do you think that Santa Muerte and the fact that it's being really spearheaded by a movement of women, do you think it's emerged as a kind of counterbalance to the very well-established sort of machismo of Mexican culture? Um. I would say that it counterbalances the machismo of the state and of the Catholic Church, but there's also a lot of machismo in even in Santa Muerte. You know, I can't deny it that there are many men, perhaps femicidal murderers, who might kill women and be, you know, and venerate Santa Muerte. There are narcos, there are many, many men. And of course, I don't want to say that all Mexican men are narcos or murderers, because definitely there are, they, they are not. 
you know, and I, I wouldn't ever want to mislead our listeners into thinking that, but there are nefarious characters that worship Santa Muerte who are machista as they come. But also the other distinction that I want to make is that, you know, not all narcos are a chapo. We have a sort of narco culture that seeps through to us from shows on Netflix, like what are they called? Like It's literally called Narcos. Okay. Yeah. Um, very original <laughs> and these characters are often you know living in elaborate mansions lives of luxury with uh you know women coming out of their ears and maybe they have jaguars or something as pets i don't know all these sort of ridiculous details but the truth is that that many people that we would call narcos are actually living you know very precarious lives and and have very little money to their name and and the fact of the matter is is you know if you're a fisherman here for example you could earn how much is a thousand five hundred pesos I think about a thousand pesos is about sixty dollars Canadian, sixty-five dollars. Yeah, Canadian. if you're lucky, you might earn sixty, maybe to a hundred um, dollars Canadian. If you're really lucky with a good, good catch, right, a fish. But you've been out on the high seas for maybe twenty-four to forty-eight hours to get those fish, and that's not going to happen to you every day. You have to pay for gasoline. Your motor will cost you twenty thousand Canadian dollars. Often, you're not even fishing off your own boat. You're asking someone if you can use their boat, and then you just get a cut from whatever the whole team makes because people go out in groups of three and four, and these are really small, flimsy, flimsy boats. So you know, maybe you're making sixty. 60 Canadian dollars, but maybe you haven't been able to catch fish for week after week after week, or maybe it's not the fishing season, or maybe there are storms and you can't go out. And you know, there's no SERB, there's no unemployment insurance, you can't just go and get health benefits, and you've got a family to feed, you've got to feed the children tortilla, you know, where's your taco going to come from? Where's your wife going to get the groceries? So Often, you know, people may turn to these things out of desperation. And they're not really violent people, but they might just put a load of something in their boat and, and take it to wherever it needs to go. The other thing is also you can be born into a family where that's all you know. Um, or you might marry into a family where that's what's done. And you can't say no. I mean, there's a very flimsy line down here between what's moral and what's immoral. And that goes from the government, because we know that there's narco-politicians, right, who cut deals, as I think you see in the show Narcos, right, where there's just very corrupt politicians. So what kind of example does that set people who, many of whom left school at 12 and have no other opportunities, you know, they, they may also have a flimsy view of what's right and what's wrong and honestly a lot of these people are not doing violence they're just you know carrying stuff around in their boat and I think that's why Santa Muerte is so appealing because she's death death judges no one because death comes to us all so it doesn't matter what you did in your past or what you're doing in your present you can be LGB etc you can be a sex worker um, you can be a person of, of any vocation uh, you could, you know, be someone who uses drugs regularly, who sells drugs, and she will still listen to you regardless. Not like Jesus, who's going to say, "Oh, well, you know, you sinned, so uh, I'm not going to come through for you on that prayer." Santa Muerte does not judge. In some ways, 
this kind of makes me think of the original sort of historical Jesus who hung out with sex workers. So in some ways, perhaps worship of Santa Muerte is getting back to a more pure form of the original meaning of Christianity. But that's a, that's a rabbit hole I don't think we have time to go down right now. Um, you brought up an important point about the different types of groups of people who worship Santa Muerte. Now, one surprising one I was reading about was the police. Uh, do you know anything about that or any other surprising groups of people? Yeah, Santa Muerte appeals to a plethora of people. As I said, anyone can worship her from housewives to fishermen to the police. Of course, the police are afraid. You know, they're afraid of on their daily patrol patrol yeah the daily patrol out into the streets of wherever because their lives can be on the line at the same time you have to understand that the police you, know, you can't make black and white dichotomies in mexico everything is is oh i god i hate to say this but 50 shades of gray um <laughs> Uh, because, you know, even the police may be working with certain narcos or they may even be forced to, you know, people, there's also do or die here where uh, uh, some narco can come to you and your family and say, well, unless you do this for me, then, you know, you're never going to see your wife again. So things are extremely nuanced here and it's very hard, I'd say, to put a finger on what's good, what's bad, who's right, who's wrong. So, yeah, police are... But uh, if you want a really surprising one, there's even been clergy that have converted much to the church's great ire uh, to Santa Muerte because she offers something that's a little bit, bit more liberal and far less hypocritical because, as I said, this is a very loosely organized religious movement. People take the faith into their own hands. There's no one from on top, from on high, telling you what to do. Yeah. Well, I think there's something really... that really resonates with people about a non-hierarchical form of, of religious practice or one where you have a direct connection to the God as opposed to having some sort of corrupt church act as an intermediary between you and, and your faith. Um, speaking a little bit about the... You've written about individualism, which from what I interpreted regarded a loss of individual self when conducting rituals or taking part in these ceremonies. Could you explain that a little bit? I think in the West we're so constantly focused on being individuals, taking pictures of ourselves as selfies. You know, we're constantly obsessed with ourselves, what we want. There's a sort of ego centrism to that and we think of ourselves as bounded off from others um, and even from the world which is why I think we're so um, disrespectful of our environment and pollute it so much and, and use so many petrochemical products and you know, toil the land to the nth degree and, and use, you know, pesticides and all these awful, awful things that are, are very chemically toxic. Um, but I think when you engage in a spiritual experience, at least in my experience with Santa Muerte, you start to forget about yourself as an individual. When you take place in ceremonies with other people, you actually start to merge with them and you start to merge also with whatever deity you're working with and you start to realize that the boundaries between you and other people are actually very, very porous and there's almost a sort of osmotic 
process where even though you'll never be that person or ever know, truly know, you know, I will never know the Mexican women's experiences, you, by sharing these powerful moments that involve death and involve sharing experiences of, of death and deathly situations, whether literal or metaphysical, metaphorical, you you start to osmose with other people and take on their experiences and feel them very, very strongly. And you also begin to take on... It's very hard to put in words because I don't think we really have the language for it in English, to be honest. But you start to swim in currents where other people are also swimming and those currents are their currents and your currents and they start to mix and then also the currents of death and all that becomes one and you become one with it. It's sort of like a merging experience for lack of better words. For me, that instantly makes me think about the sort of archetypal psychedelic experience where the boundaries between yourself and the friends you're with become very blurred. Similar in, in Buddhism, specifically Tibetan Buddhism, there's a practice called deity yoga, where you're supposed to, to meditate on a particular bodhisattva and in that meditation literally merge with that person. There's something very beautiful about the simplicity of that Buddhist practice. To become a Buddha, you simply become a Buddha, <laughs> receiving the projection of all of those ideals and ideas. Um, so I've read in a lot of your work that Santa Muerte is one of the fastest growing religious movements in the Western Hemisphere. What do you think explains the fact that it's growing so rapidly, and what do you think the future holds? Mm, that's a huge question. I mean, Dr. Andrew Chestnut said that it's because she's a fast and efficient miracle worker, which she is, and that is her reputation. And absolutely, I would agree with his assertion of that. But I think it's because she offers so much more than the Catholic Church or even the burgeoning evangelical movements offer in that, as I said, this is a faith for everyone um, death judges nobody and she offers such a plethora of services you know that other faiths do not if you look at her different color manifestations this can give you an indication so white for peace for healing uh, red for love um, domination lust sex um, yellow is often and gold are often used for money yellow often used for success um, green for, for problems with, with justice, blue for, uh, and, and legal issues and such, blue for uh, academic concentration, communication, etc. cetera, uh, pink for tenderness, uh, care, purple for spiritual favors, and also it can be sort of physical um, healing as well. Black, as I said, for vengeance, uh, for protection. Orange for drug addiction problems. Um, and there's even more colors now that are coming out, such as silver for tapping into the power of the moon, uh, and also for money, of course. Uh, even brown now can be used for communicating with the dead, sort of for necromantic purposes. Um, trying to think of the other colors now. There are more and more colors that sort of emerge every day that really give you 
an idea of how multifaceted her powers are and how much she offers to devotees and these give you i would say very specific tools for for handling problems i mean on the one hand this is a hugely practical faith because people have so many different issues that they're dealing with but i think also she offers a deep spirituality and, and a way for for navigating uh, not only life but also death which we all must face as i said whether literal death or whether these small deaths that plague us every single day or month when things don't go through, when we have issues, when we question who we are. Santa Muerte gives you a lot of tools to deal with all of that. Certainly a lot to think about. And for anyone who wants to learn more, where can they find your work? There's a website called skeletonsaint.com where there's a lot of stuff on Santa Muerte uh, written by myself and others, uh, testimonies from devotees and such. Also, if you Google Dr. Kate Kingsbury, I'm on academia.edu and there's a lot of free articles so you can find that. And I will have a book forthcoming called Daughters of Death, Female Followers of Santa Muerte that will be published hopefully in the not too distant future. Right. Well, that's all we have time for right now. But thank you so much for coming on and dispelling some of the... Because uh, I think people who do know about Santa Muerte, at least people who are listening to this show, probably heard about it in Breaking Bad and probably have a whole lot of misconceptions that needed to be cleared up. So thank you for coming on and doing that for us. Thank you so much for uh, having me, Ian, or should I call you Juan, which is your Mexican <laughs> name now, Juanito. Yes, we'll see. We'll see if that sticks. I don't know if it's going to stick in East Van, but at least for for down here, we can make it work. Thank you, Ian. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to today's show. That was Dr. Kate Kingsbury, professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia. If you are interested, I understand that she has helped edit a recently released book called Secrets of Santa Muerte. You can find that anywhere that books are sold. And if you want to hear more from me, why don't you go ahead and follow me on Instagram, which you can do at East Van to Elsewhere. We're playing you out with a song that I listened to with Dr. Kingsbury driving around in Oaxaca. The song is called Astral by Landy Khan. <laughs>